Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater June 22nd through August 3rd in Logan. Full orchestra, concerts, workshops, and performances of Marriage Figaro, Bravo Caruso, Mary Poppins, and more. 146 events. Details and tickets at utahfestival.org. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We welcome in Utah author Marianne Martinson uh, today to talk about her uh, book, Beyond the Savannah. Here's the plot in brief. Uh, It's set in the African wilderness where 19-year-old Hannah feels like she has it all. A lion cub she's raised after his mother is killed, virtuous parents who love her, dear friends who try to protect her. Hannah boldly embraces her wildlife, even after her friends warn her to be careful. And when poachers invade their peaceful coexistence, Hannah courageously goes up against them. One terrifying night, her entire life, with everything she loves, is shattered. Hannah is forced to flee half a world away. In her new home, living with distant relatives who can't begin to understand Hannah's passions, she falls for a man uh, she cannot have. Beyond the Savannah is a story of a young woman who journeys to find her true destiny and discovers love along the way. Uh, Beyond Beyond the Savannah is Marianne Martinson's first first, first book. First, yes. it's it's a novel. Uh, so, uh, first of all, welcome to the program. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So, you've had a a background with with animals. Have always loved animals, right? And I guess that's yes. Maybe inevitable. You'd you'd have you'd have some themes of nature and animals in in a book. Yeah, for sure. Um, Animals have always been a part of my life from the time I was a child, and it just was very natural for me to uh, work them into the story. Uh, So uh, before we get into the the story, um, tell me about this. You know, some people are really into animals, some are not. You're you're in the uh, the former category. Mm -hmm. Not the usual cats and dogs, although those were involved, right? Yeah, yeah. So spiders? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, most people don't really understand this, but uh, the house that I grew up in, um, my mom loved spiders. Well, not in the way that she wanted to pet them, but she was fascinated by them. And so, I mean, a spider coming into our house wasn't an automatic death sentence. And if it was a really cool spider, like a cat face spider, for instance, then um, they got preserved and we we went and uh, we watched them and you know got to see their way they behaved and that kind of thing so uh, interested in in as you say not you know you <laughs> don't want to pet a spider but interested in and willing to coexist with the spiders yeah yeah and then the, actually the house where i live right now i mean with my husband uh spiders are kind of welcome which i know right. sounds weird um but my husband actually will f- get little bugs and feed spiders and um, make sure that they're getting nice and plump. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you think that comes from? Um, it's this love for, you know, just um, cherishing all life, I guess, and mm-hmm. just understanding that just because they're kind of creepy looking doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad. Uh, they do a lot of good too, right? Right. Yeah, spiders do a lot of good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't want to belabor the spiders, but uh, <laughs> I mean, some of them are quite poisonous. Is that? Well, okay. So, pi- poisonous spiders at my house don't end up 
staying there. I have to admit, those do get killed because, well, I don't want anybody to get bit and hurt, obviously. Yeah, yeah. So that, that, I mean, you have to you have to learn your spiders if you're going to discriminate <laughs> that way, right? Yeah. yeah, mostly it's just those black widows that I see around on occasion. Yeah, uh, they're obviously going to you know, cause harm. I have to tell a spider story. It's, it's my only spider story. Okay. Um, I was, um, I, I noticed a spider, this is many years ago, a spider kind of in the sink. And so I, I redirected the spray and, and he was uh, near the drain about to circle uh, to his death. And then I had mercy. <laughs> so I got a piece of paper and uh, let him uh, crawl onto the, the paper. But I didn't want him in the house. So I put him outside. Would have been a fine story in July. It was January. Yes. So I went inside feeling really good about myself. Maybe, I don't know, half an hour later, I remembered, okay, it's January and I have not been merciful. <laughs> went outside, sure enough, he was frozen solid. Yes, I have put spiders outside <laughs> in the middle of the winter and apologizing as I'm doing it that, that I'm sorry, I'm probably just making your life worse. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be a way I'd want to go, but it was either that or, you know, maybe like risk that they might be crawling on me in the night. So, yeah. but I have a story to tell about spiders. Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> My husband um, was keeping a spider in the windowsill and he'd been feeding it and he noticed one day that it was getting skinny. So said to the the animals, we have, you know, a cat and a dog. It's like, hey, guys, we need to go find um, and something to feed this spider. So they go out, and it's in the fall, and my husband was not being able to find a single bug. Like, they'd all just disappeared off the earth. And um, so he goes back into the house, and he's thinking that he's felled the spider. And then all of a sudden, the cat comes running up, and the cat has a grasshopper in its mouth and just drops it at my husband's feet. And so we've decided that that cat, whom we still have, speaks English very well and understands. <laughs> yeah, and that's, it, it, it's, it's almost eerie sometimes. Obviously, you know, cats and dogs don't, don't understand English, right? I, 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 I'm guessing, right? But some, some kind of communication. Oh, for some, sure. I guess they're reading our cues. I'm not sure what's happening. Oh, I think cues, and, and I do think they know some words, mm -hmm. you know, um, like with a dog, you can generally say certain words that's going to like outside or, you know, go for a walk or go for a car ride. They're going to react to that immediately and go straight to the door or go to the closet for the leash. Uh, so I want to ask you about that connection and we'll, that'll get us into the book. But to get us to get us there, and I'm reading your blog, uh, MarianneMartinson.com. Mm hmm um, tell me about a ferret named Alfie. Uh, so when I was in high school, I decided that I wanted a ferret for a pet, and my poor mother didn't know what I was getting her into. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he was a mischievous little scamp, and um, he'd run around the house and, well, get into closets and cupboards, and poor mom had to put up with finding a ferret in the uh, <laughs> cupboard with her pans. Uh, he, he liked to do things too, like, um, so I had a little sister and she came home from a birthday party and she had a helium balloon and she was 
really happy to have that helium balloon, but as soon as Alfie saw it, he, well, he was on the back of a chair that was by the door, and as soon as he saw it, he leapt off the chair and bit the balloon and got really excited on the way down and did his little ferret happy dance, and my <laughs> sister was, like, crying with her her popped balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apparently Alfie, was it Alfie? Did I get this right? Alfie liked to ride the, the, the cat. cat and dog, the cat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, Alfie, he, he played it a little rambunctiously and he did really enjoy playing with the cat. The cat wasn't quite sure what to make of that, but he did actually climb onto the cat's back and hang on. And so it was kind of like a rodeo ride with the cat running around with the ferret on his back. <laughs> now, now that's fun, right? That's really fun. Uh, so that gets me to my, my question, whether it's a dog or cat or a ferret or, you know, even a, even a spider, obviously, you know, some of these animals become family. There's there's that much of a connection. What Tell me about that connection for you. Oh, wow. Yeah, so there's a huge connection that way for me. In fact, I'm kind of careful about what animals I'll bring into my house because I'll attach, and they'll be family. Um, of course, there's the regular cats and dogs that we have, and, and they're, they're um, you know, it's easy for people to understand how you bond with cats and dogs because we do it all the time. And, um, you know, at my house, in my house, they are on the couch watching movies with us or on the bed sleeping with us. And they're just really literally part of the family. But recently I got chickens. Not real recently. It's been a couple of years. And my husband insisted we have chickens. I was kind of leery about getting chickens because I knew it was one more thing I'd attach to and that I would be emotionally bonded and wanting to take care of them. But he really wanted those fresh eggs, so I let him. <laughs> and, uh, of course, yes, I became very attached and bonded, and now they're my little princesses. And I go out, and first thing in the morning, I actually let them out of their coop, and I talk to them almost kind of like Cinderella-like. you like, good morning, girls. And <laughs> 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 looks like we got a nice day on tap here. <laughs> so so uh, is it unconditional love? I mean, you'd think about dogs that way, not cats maybe. Mm-hmm. What, what What is it that that makes that, that bond so strong in many cases? Yeah, um, I feel like it is unconditional love like you have for a child. Um, for me, animals are very childlike, and it does bring out this um, desire to protect them and just take care of them and love them. And sometimes it's the idea of animals, right? Just the animals in the wild. Animals we've never met, mm-hmm. right? So that'll bring us into the, uh, into the book. Um, tell, me, tell me about this. You know, sometimes it's a foolish question to ask an author, where did this come from? Because it's, it's just, it just comes from the subconscious sometimes. But, uh, you know, you live in Utah, Mm-hmm. Have you have you been to Africa? No, I haven't. But and, and so this this novel set in in Africa, so that's got to come from somewhere in in you, some some passion that you have. Exactly. And so I did break a rule when I wrote this book and set it in Africa, since I'd never been there. And 
uh, authors were always told that we should write what we're familiar with. But I've always loved Africa, um, mostly because the most iconic animals on the planet, in my opinion, live in Africa. <clears throat> and um, so it was kind of natural for me to want to set the book in Africa because I really wanted there to be some really cool wildlife in the story. So it did require me to do a whole lot. And I'm talking about hundreds of hours of research to be able to set the book authentically in Africa. Um, I did, I've watched documentaries, I read and a lot of um, articles and books and other stories that were set in Africa. And I even did some interviews with people from Kenya so that I could get a real good sense. And I actually did have somebody who read the book um, who lives in Africa and told me that I had done a really good job of making it authentic. Oh, that's a nice compliment. Yeah, yeah. it was. Yeah. So, um, you know, the idea of animals, the idea of wild, I guess, it's even for people, you know, who've never, no, I've never been to Africa, right? But it, uh, I'm concerned about species over there, right? There, there, there is some sort of a connection, uh, you know, many are worried about Oh, species yeah. that you never interacted with. Yeah, so if you're talking about poaching, uh, there are some species in Africa and quite a few that are really endangered, at least vulnerable. And um, you can start with elephants that uh, they're really at risk and because of their, their tusks, uh, still in so much demand and probably most of the demand is in China. Um, even though it's illegal there now, uh, there's still a, a, a demand for for uh, ivory that is fueling the poaching trade, and elephants are dying in mass amounts. Of, and you know they're just bodies laying all over with with their tusks just missing and everything else left to waste from this beautiful beautiful animal. Also, um, rhinos are uh, critically endangered and even animals like lions are vulnerable and giraffes and uh, there's a little animal called the pangolin that is uh, heavily poached because of its scales are used in medicine and so um, it's endangered. Hmm. Uh, I want to jump into the story after a break. Let's take a break, and then uh, we'll jump into uh, meet uh, Hannah Blake and Yatima, a lion that she's raised from a cub, and uh, get into this uh, this topic. By the way, uh, poaching is a very complicated subject, and you, you treat it as the complicated subject it is in, in, in the book. I do. There's a lot of forces coming to, to, to bear. Oh, yeah, there is, yeah. It's, it's not just a simple thing. There's all kinds of different influences from depending on which angle you're coming at it from. So we'll treat that as well. Much more following this break. Elizabeth Gilbert has led an interesting life. Her memoir about her divorce turned into the book Eat, Pray, Love, which sold millions of copies. How scary does it feel to have millions of people relate to your personal story? Well, Elizabeth Gilbert will tell you. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. This afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. 
It's among the most well-known, serious works of classical music, but I can't help it. When I hear this opening theme, I think of the old Monty Python skit where a magician plays the concerto while escaping from a burlap bag. We'll reminisce about that with the Piano Concerto No. 1 by Tchaikovsky on the next Performance Today from APM. Tomorrow evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Utah author Marianne Martinson is my guest. And we're talking about her first book, Beyond the Savannah. Set in Africa, we meet 19-year-old Hannah Blake and Yatima, a lion that she raised from a cub in a Kenyan village where she was born. Uh, We're going to talk about the plot. She ends up uh, in Utah. And we're talking about many themes, uh, including animal welfare, endangered species, poaching, um, and uh, personal themes, uh, including uh, forgiveness. So, um, and later in the program, Marion Martinson, I want to get back to talking about you. Um, and we'll just tease this. Um, it, it took cancer to get you to, to finish your book, right? Yes. So we'll talk about that a little, a little later. I know we have um, listeners who are working on their books, and they'll, they'll, they'll find your story uh, inspirational. So uh, tell me about your main character, Hannah Blake. Um, well, Hannah was born in Africa to American parents, and so she's lived in this small rural village her entire life, which has really affected her in the way that she's uh, very down-to-earth and connected to nature and the animals. Um, she has happiness with just small things, doesn't need material things to feel uh fulfilled. In fact, she's almost completely non-materialistic, doesn't even get that. Um, so uh, she has a, a lion. Yes. <laughs> Is fair to call that a pet lion? I don't know, a friend? So, so um, you can refer to him as a pet. She thinks of him more as a child because Hannah's way of thinking really is that you can't own something that's living. So, yeah, she thinks of him as her child, but um, yeah, Yatima's mother was killed when the um, mother got into the village and killed some livestock, and so villagers went after Yatima's mother and killed her in retaliation. Uh, When Hannah went to go see how, uh, you know, she wanted to go see what had happened and see if the lioness was still alive. Um, she found her dead, but she then she heard a little little mew in the from the bushes and so she found a little little cub that needed mothering then and so she took him home and she he became her little boy and he's mischievous like a, a child and gets into trouble, but he's, you know, 450 pounds, so sometimes it's a little bit much, and her parents are a little bit frustrated at times. Yeah, I, I would imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's have you read a passage. Okay. That'll introduce us to yep, sure. Hannah and, and, and Yotima. Steam wafted from the simmering pot of beans and wet Hannah's face as she inhaled the delicious scent of coconut and spices. 
Her mouth watered in anticipation, but Mom insisted the Maharagwe needed a few more minutes. Sensing a flood of restless energy from behind, Hannah whirled. Then came the expected heavy thud of padded paws. Don't even think about it, she said to her pet lion. You know we can't play inside. Below his shaggy mane, Yatima had her teddy bear clamped between his knotty teeth. Mbaya, Hannah scolded. You heard me. Drop Adiana. The lion's golden eyes lit with mischief, and she knew that look all too well. Crap. She dove for the toys Yatima tore from the kitchen, wincing as her knees skidded across the wood floor, and still she came up empty-handed. Something crashed in the living room. She limped around the corner, groaning at the sight of the coffee table lying on its side. Mom's precious knick-knacks scattered across the floor. Yatima stood on the sofa, forming deep indents in the cushions, tail swishing side to side. Hannah huffed in, as- in frustration. What's gotten into you? Her parents peeked in from the front porch. Mom's eyes wide and Dad's narrow. Their thoughts were apparent. She'd better not let Yatima near Mom's piano. Sure, the ancient upright was a weathered clunker with yellowed keys, not worth much even as an antique, but it was priceless to Mom. Hannah suddenly felt five again, caught balancing on the piano, trying to catch the wild bush baby. It wasn't her fault that her friend of the moment had followed her indoors, or had she carried it in? It was crucial she proved she was in control, or all the months of training the cub and convincing her parents the now full-grown lion was obedient and trustworthy enough to be allowed indoors would go down the chew in one incredibly disappointing flush. Hannah pointed vehemently toward the front door. Yatima, outside! But the lion leapt to the floor, moving in the direction of her parents' bedroom. Not there! She threw herself onto him, her slender frame hardly slowing his pace as her feet slid across the bedroom threshold, a sheepish grin plastered between her cheeks. Yatima jumped onto the bed and crouched, the frame creaking in protest, and Hannah bumped the door shut. What, have I not been giving you enough attention? The lion watched intently as she tiptoed toward him. As she neared the bed, Yatima sprang. Hannah launched herself and landed on him again, laughing through her nose as they wrestled on the floor between the bed and the wall. They rolled into Mom's nightstand, rattling its contents. Hannah froze, waiting for the jangling lamp to fall. (laughs) There's Hannah and and Yatima. This is a, a fantasy in a way for a lot of people, I imagine, to interact so closely with a wild animal. Mm-hmm. In this case, Yatima is not as wild because she's been raised right. in quote-unquote civilization, but a wild species, right? And so like a lot of us maybe wonder what that would be like to interact so closely. Right, right. And in order to write uh, this relationship between Hannah and Yatima, I actually did some research on um, people in Africa that live in the uh, parks that have actually found a lion cub and raised the cub up. And so what was that like? And I was able to transfer that into my story. Um, The thing about lions is, of course, I would never, ever suggest that anybody should have a pet lion. Uh, In fact, you know, having a pet lion does become a bit of a problem for Hannah. Uh, But if you think about it, 
um, this is the way I think of it, is that our cats, we have cats that weigh maybe, I don't know, seven, ten pounds or more, but but uh, every once in a while, they'll get a little testy. I mean, if you pet them too much, pet them too long, all of a sudden they might s- snap and scratch at you. Um, that's just kind of a cat's nature. Uh, not all cats are that way, but if you think that perhaps a lion is kind of like a really big cat, I think you would have to be kind of careful mm-hmm. because if they got a little bit testy for a moment, it could actually be a lot more than just a scratch on your arm. Yeah, I, I could imagine. <laughs> I interviewed a gentleman once who uh, had a, a similar situation with a bear. He'd raised this bear from a, from a cub. Mm-hmm. And he'd interact very closely with, with this bear, including getting up and riding on the bear. But he said, y- you, you looked for the signs. And if, if his bear friend was, you know, feeling a bit wild that day, you didn't approach him. You just had to look, be very careful because of the, that, that innate uh, nature. Yeah. Um, so Hannah is, she's raised in Africa. Her parents are... What came over for Peace Corps or something, and then stayed to? Yes, yeah, to, that's to exactly. So, um, yeah, they came over as Peace Corps volunteers, and they fell in love with the village so much so that they decided to return and to become a permanent part of the village. And they built a a, a clinic, and and they even decided to open an orphanage to help children, not just in the village that they live in, but in surrounding villages, and uh, started a school. and um, And Hannah lived in lives in a little, a, a small wood house, but it's a little bit more uh, modern than what the typical villager lives in in that village. Um, so they encounter poachers, mm-hmm. right? And there's a crux of the conflict in, in the story. Uh, Hannah decides she's, she's going to go up against the poachers. Yes, she does because, uh, she's got a really deep connection with the animals. And so it's not even just that, that she, she doesn't want to see an animal hurt, but she really feels like she feels what they they go through and um, sometimes they're trapped for long periods of time uh, like if their legs caught in a snare and poachers won't come back and check on them and then they're dehydrating to death or chewing on their legs trying to get out of the the trap um, but yeah she's she's uh, very motivated to to take care of the animals and make sure that they're not being abused. So um, I promise we bring that come back to poaching. So, so uh, as we said before, poaching is complicated. In some cases, the poacher is motivated by extreme poverty, right? And uh... so, um, of course, anybody who's poaching is doing it for the motivation of money, because there's usually not. The bodies aren't usually being used for food, like an elephant's just left to rot, and like, uh, you know, rhinos, they just take their horn, and, well, I got, 
so we were we were saying that the, motiv- the motivation is money, but for some people, I guess they really need the money. Oh, okay, There's, yeah. You know, kind of complicating factors <laughs> for poaching, right? Right, right. So, but most people who are into poaching is are are after quick money. Um, it's really a brutal thing and is really tearing Africa apart. So there are a lot better ways they could earn money that wouldn't be so destructive. Um, so then there's a tragedy, mm-hmm. right? And then uh, Hannah ends up a world away. Yeah. Um, which is the, the world that she ends up in is so completely different from the way she grew up. And I constructed the book that way on purpose and that I wanted to have Hannah's beginnings be very, very simplistic. And then she and she's happy and feels like she has everything she needs. Well, when she ends up in Utah, she's living with wealthy relatives. Um, she's never met them before. They are a little bit self-centered and they don't understand Hannah's passions. She's living in a world of wealth and materialism and from the outside people might think she has everything but she's never been more broken, sad or lonely in this place than she is in this place. So that must have been interesting to write a place that you're very familiar with from through the eyes of someone for whom it's very alien. Yeah, yeah. Actually, that was very interesting because I had to keep putting myself back in her eyes. Like when I had her come to the airport, I thought, what would that be like for somebody who's been in Africa their whole lives? And I thought it'd probably be a lot of white faces, not used to seeing so many. Um, And then, of course, there's just the difference in the the freeways and the way the homes are set up and there's so much you know the yards are neat and square and green and it's all very foreign to her so tell me a little bit about this culture clash hannah's uh, fish out of water you know um she feels very uncomfortable in this place that we uh, the readers mostly will be a lot of the readers will be feeling comfortable in this, but but it's interesting to take the reader and put them through Hannah's eyes. Tell me a little bit about that culture clash. Yeah, so she's, well, the first first class she has is really just walking into the home where she's going to be living and meeting her new family, and they're kind of sitting stiffly at the dinner table, and they're, they're dressed up because this family likes to be formal, and she's wearing some shorts and some sandals, and she feels really out of place. Um, and then they want to talk about they want to talk about her life as if she has no um, as as if she she hasn't been. Um, what am I trying to say here? She, As if she's not, she hasn't had, um, oh, okay, she's not intelligent, she couldn't mm, possibly know, mm-hmm. have have uh, any idea of how to live amongst them. 
Yeah, it's, it is kind of a pretty stark uh, culture clash. In the, in the middle of this, and, and Hannah always has connection to animals, mm-hmm. uh, she, she, uh, she has connection with a, with a deer. Yeah. So uh, this deer is called Lindsay by a friend of Hannah's, and there's a story behind that. Um, but Lindsay comes into Hannah's life when Hannah needs a friend, and Hannah, uh, since she's very connected with animals, when Lindsay shows up, she's very open to that as a friend. And Lindsay's kind of a, a symbol of, of that you need to be gentle, be kind to yourself. And, and sometimes she keeps Hannah a little, she keeps her like on track, keep being honest with herself about what's really going on with her and doesn't let her uh, get too far off into her own pain. So Hannah, Hannah experiences these connections <clears throat> with animals. This is not totally foreign to anyone who loves animals, right? Sure. Um, you could almost, you could call it mystical connections. I don't know. What, what, what do you think? So I believe some people really do have mystical connections with animals. Um, Hannah, in the story, I wanted her to have this uh, more than just an, a normal connection. So she actually can feel what animals are feeling. I call her like the elephant whisperer. So when when animals are endangered or suffering in the story, she really, really gets it and it affects her deeply because of that. You mentioned elephants. Mm-hmm. Elephants appear. Yes. Throughout throughout the book. Yes. Tell me what's going on there. What what do they represent? I guess for you, to Hannah. So, in the first in the beginning, when Hannah is realizing that the elephants could be endangered by from the poachers, it's this kind of a a feeling of of how vulnerable they are, even though they're 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 such big creatures, but she knows that they are so much at risk from these ruthless people. Um, and then in another, and, and so it's just really uh, just makes her want to protect them for sure. She's, and the, another time when the elephants show up, it's more like a, a warning uh, like symbolically and the strength of an elephant coming through and saying you're going to need to have a lot of strength right now and um, this is a time for you to be patient with yourself. And so it's it's more like something to gain from them. And we do get that, don't we? Certain animals tend to represent things for us, mm-hmm. I think. Um so tell me about Sam. Sam, Hannah meets this this man named uh, Sam. So Sam um, has lived in the United States all of his life. So he's somebody she meets when she comes to Utah. And Sam has no idea that um, he's just met somebody. Well, no, he doesn't get it that he met somebody that he's had in his dreams for uh, much of his life. And so Sam, it feels like 
he's in love with a woman in his dreams, and that makes him feel a little bit nuts because he seems to have a hard time connecting with the real women in his life and doesn't think he's capable of love. So when he meets Hannah, um, he still doesn't get it that that she's the one because in his mind, there is no way that the dream person in his dream could really be in his life for real. Uh, these dreams are pretty vivid for him, right? Why do you think he doesn't connect? He doesn't, you know, because reading it, you might think, well, why wouldn't he Sam, connect? Why don't you connect immediately? Right. And it's because he lives in this world where he's, he's putting a lot of um, expectations on himself, like, uh, from from society, well, you can't, you shouldn't be thinking things like that, or you shouldn't be feeling things like that. That's inappropriate. Um, and for instance, when they first meet, he's uh, her teacher and um, a, a professor in college, and he looks at her immediately as somebody who's off limits because. That's the school rules for one thing. And for another thing, he's had an experience that made him feel like uh, to look at a student uh, in a way that you want them is is uh, not good. It can get you into trouble kind of thing. Not that anything he did, but something he had done to him when he was younger. Right. Um, so we don't want to give too much of the story away, but no. there are some themes of justice. Mm-hmm. And forgiveness. Yes. <clears throat> I wonder, writing these things, um, how did that af- affect you? Did you come to any different views on on those two big themes, justice and forgiveness? Yeah. Interestingly, the very first draft that I wrote of this book, I did not have an ending that included justice. And I had people tell me that it was really missing something, and I had to go back in and put that back in. But what did I want that to look like? Did I want that to look like um, really spiteful, mean revenge? Or did I want it to come from a kind of loving place? And um, when Hannah you know, comes to a point where she has to forgive, it's, she realizes it's a lot for herself that she's doing this because if she hangs on to this anger for any longer, it's really just going to destroy her life as it has been for a long time. Did you, and, and this is kind of a related question, uh, I imagine you're putting some of yourself into to Hannah, if only subconsciously. So now having finished the book, do you learn things from Hannah? Uh, well, yes, I did learn things from Hannah. For one thing, I learned that um, that animals really are very much deeper than we think they are. And when I had Hannah realize that for me, it was able. I was able to kind of see that more than I had before. Uh, so I believe that if you look into an animal's eyes, uh, this is one thing that Hannah taught me, that you actually see a soul. And um, I, I experience that when I look into an animal's eyes. It's that there's, there's an actual 
life there that's got light behind it. And I guess that would only deepen concerns for animal welfare issues. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this experience of really going deeper into how animals might feel kind of ended up being uh, the catalyst for me becoming vegetarian (laughs) because it was hard for me to then decide that if I can look into an animal's eyes and see that there's light and a soul in there that then to eat them. Uh, I still live with, I live with people who are omnivorous, so I don't judge people who eat meat, but I do like to ask people to understand that in the uh, meat industry, there's a lot of cruelty going on, and that it's probably uh, one of the biggest problems that we have around us that we're not paying any attention to and lots of sentient beings living and dying on a production line and really suffering let's um let's take another break when we come back i want to talk uh end the conversation in our last 10 minutes with your with your story okay um your journey uh, you had a dream of being a writer right yeah and uh, and you became a writer. And that, now, it's easy to say that sentence, hard to do it, right? So I want to right. talk about that. Okay. Uh, we're talking with Marianne Martinson. Uh, her first book, Beyond the Savannah, is what we're talking about uh, today. Um, and uh, you're welcome to join the conversation by email to upraxcess at gmail.com or call us 800-826-1495. Uh, by the way, where can people get the book? The website? So the best and easiest place to get it right now is on Amazon. Okay. It's available on barnesandnoble.com as well. All right. And you can find out more information as well on the website, mariannemartinson.com. More following this break. I'm Jeremy Hobson. An African-American Democratic lawmaker says she supports Louisiana's restrictive abortion law because there are too many abortions in her community. I don't ever believe abortion should be the answer to poverty. I believe that as African-Americans, we should be fighting to make sure that we implement policies that give families uh, livable wages that make sure women have equal pay. That view next time on Here and Now. Join us today at noon on Utah Public Radio. American cities and baseball go together, well, like America and baseball. And one man has set out to understand that relationship by writing a book. Baseball parks as American public space, really, and how the history of ballparks and the history of American cities are kind of deeply intertwined. I'm Kimberly Adams, the history of America and its beloved ballparks. That's next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Five siblings playing five pianos. Melody Brown says the five Browns actually enjoy making artistic decisions together. Everybody's got different ideas, and we'll just take a vote on it. Everybody, raise of hands. If you're outvoted, then we move on, and then that's it. The five Browns play the planets on the next Performance Today from APM. This evening at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We've reached our last segment with Marianne Martinson. She's a Utah author, and we've been talking about her uh, first book, Beyond the Savannah. 
and that's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble. You can find out more about Marianne Martinson at her website, MarianneMartinson.com. I want to uh, take the last 10 minutes to talk about uh, your personal story, Marianne Martinson. A good way to into this is from the Reader's Guide, which you can find at MarianneMartinson.com. And you told me before we went on the air, this was written by your sister? Yeah, so my sister, my younger sister, is a writer as well. She has a novel that she's working on. Um, but she's got a very analytical mind, and so I had her, she she offered to put together the reader's guide for me, and I was like, go for it. And she did a really good job of it. Some really good questions here. I'm just going to ask one. Um, so we talked about Sam yeah. uh, in, in the book, and... Um, she comes up with this question. How does the author use routine and expectation to trap Sam in a life he doesn't want? And so I, I think I resonated with that. Mm -hmm. Routine routine can be comforting. Routine can be good. Mm -hmm. uh, can bring order. But it also can be a trap. Right? Yeah, and, yeah. and so for I don't know how much you were into to routine, how much that was a trap for you. But uh, it was a cancer diagnosis that sort of blasted you out of your routine and, and sent you ultimately on, on to finish your book. Yeah, that's right. So I had been working on my book for, well, literally more than a decade. <laughs> and I had let it sit for a while because I'd gone back to work uh, just thinking I wanted to bring in a little extra money into the home. And then I got kind of attached to having that extra money in the home, even when it kind of became apparent that we maybe didn't really need it. Uh, so I kept going back to work. And the interesting thing about that was, is that I wasn't really all that happy at that time, because I wasn't writing anymore. And uh, when I got the cancer diagnosis, it was two days before Christmas. And my knees, you know, just kind of went weak under me. And I was just not even sure where I was going to go. But one thing that I did know was that I needed to get my priorities straight. And it, I, I took advantage of the time that I was having treatment, so I wasn't going back to work, to finish the book. And my husband actually made a comment that I was such a, uh, so much nicer since I had cancer. <laughs> and I told him, it's not because of the cancer. It's because I'm writing again. I'm happy again. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting when you're facing your mortality what things you see clearly come into sharp focus what's important. And for me, it was finishing my book and getting it published. Which you've done, which that, that's a great accomplishment. Yes. Um, as, uh, I was reading on your website, you talked about how you would, uh, when you'd fill out forms on occupation, you'd hesitate. Do I put writer? Because that was your passion. But have I really published anything? So do I put writer? Tell me about that. Yeah, and that was even a process of being able to call myself a writer. When I was first started writing the, the novel, uh, yes, be it a doctor's office or whatever, and, you're, and they ask your, your occupation and, oh, well, I'm a stay-at-home mom and, well, I am a writer, but are they going to believe me? I don't have anything to show for that. Not that anybody has to believe, but I guess I just didn't believe it in myself. And one day I saw a mug that 
had rider written on the side of it. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll buy that for myself because um, and keep that on my desk while I'm writing. And it'll just, you know, just enforce to me that or reinforce to me that I'm a writer. And But it did eventually come to the point where I was well into the book and it got to be easier and easier to call myself a writer. Do you, uh, I've heard from other writers that uh, at some point you just have to say, I'm a writer, I'm going to do this, even if nobody ever reads a word I write. That is absolutely truth for me too. Uh, sometimes you do really question if you're, what you're writing is any good. But I know that even if nobody ever read anything I wrote, that I still have this such a strong desire so deep in me that I would really just keep writing. And it gives me a lot of peace when I write. I can be in a really anxious state, but if I write, suddenly I'm taken from the anxious state and into a whole new realm that I end up in while I'm writing. And so it's actually very uh, therapeutic for me as well. That sounds like, um, you know, what reading does for me, but I don't know, you know, your reader as well, I assume. Yes. What are the differences, do you think? Well, I can, reading does that for me as well, but uh, writing just takes it to a whole different level because I'm having to really put myself into the shoes of the character I'm writing, and I literally pretty much, it feels like I leave myself and I am in this character's head. The character starts telling me uh, what they're going to do when uh, they write their own story really pretty much. I've heard that before from other writers. So I guess somewhere in your subconscious, things are, just start to happen and, you're, and the character tells you where he or she's going to go. Yeah, yeah, it's really crazy. I was on the phone with my sister, who I said is a writer, and I mean, this happened many times with both of us, but I'd say, you wouldn't believe what Hannah did today. <laughs> so yeah, it's like she's just her own character, and she just kind of took off on her own, and I'm just like, well, here she goes. Now she's out in the world. Imagine like having another child, I mm-hmm. don't know. Um, and I assume you're on to another project. What's that like? Yeah, so I am on my working on my second novel right now. Uh, I'm actually working on this one with a writing coach, and so it's been a totally different experience because my first book um, was the learning process, which is one reason why it took me so long. I did take a lot of courses and do a lot of reading and things like that, but it was done a lot by feel and trial and error and rewrote the things so many times. Um, yeah, but so for this book, I got myself a writing coach, and she's really got the art down to a science in a way. And the writing of this this second novel is going so much more quickly because of this woman helping me with this, with the you know way to get really to the the heart of the really getting to the story. And not doing so much floundering, yeah. Yeah, and floundering is probably inevitably part of the process. You just want to keep it to a minimum, right? Right, right. You can spend 10 years writing a novel or you can spend six months writing a novel. Yeah. 
Well, um, we reached the end of our time. Uh, Beyond the Savannah is out. Marianne Martinson is the author. Uh, congratulations. So, thank you. It's a great achievement, and on to the next book, I guess. Yes, thank you, and thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org. On the next Budamaya World Music Hour, we'll follow the influence of jazz from its homeland in the USA to unexpected locations like New Zealand and Slovenia and travel back to its roots in Africa. I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Jazz Around the World, the next Budamaya World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. <laughs>